we were in the middle of Scotland and at one point uh, there was, you know, there was a group of us that kind of diverted off and spent a couple of days in this hotel way, way, way up in the middle of nowhere. And at dinner, we all kind of converged at dinner. It was about six of us. And without even discussing it, everyone had put on a tuxedo. What's going on, everybody? And welcome to Collector's Gene Radio. I'm your host, Cameron Steiner, and I'm joined by my co-host and brother, Ryan. This is all about diving into the nuances of collecting and ultimately finding out whether or not our guests have what we like to call the collector's gene. That's right. And as always, please subscribe and leave a review for us. It truly helps. We hope you enjoy the pod. Let's go. All right, so you want to talk about like a true renaissance man? Matt Rannick is just that guy. His books are on your coffee table. He's the reason you may love a Negroni while holding a tray of your uncooked steaks. He loves a lot of things and is probably one of the best definitions of what this podcast is all about. From watches to experiences, his sartorially inclined outfits and friend group, there's nothing not to dig about this guy. Exactly. I mean, we chat about all those things that you just talked about. We talk about his W.M. Brown brand, tons more, including his new book on the Gronies, which if you haven't ordered, you're wasting your time by not. Uh, he chats with us also about his very rakish gathering on the Bellman Royal Scotsman, and holy shit, did that trip make us envious. Yeah. There's a lot to talk about, and we will definitely have to bring him back on, but I kind of think it's best that we just let him chat so you can soak it in. This is Matt Rannick for Collector's Dream Radio. All right, Matt, as always, uh, great pleasure to chat with you, and, and thanks for joining us today on Collector's Gene. Uh, my pleasure. Sounds like fun. Yeah, so uh, first off, I think I, I need to thank you for keeping us all sane uh, during the quarantine here between the, the cocktail recipes and all the food recipes, the, the garlic clam bread. I think everything you've put out, we've made, so I can't fit into the uh, tuxedo for my wedding in a couple months here, but uh, <laughs> let's, let's just say garlic clam bread that'll, that'll it's <laughs> uh, all you need to hear yeah well thank you for that i mean it was um a great exercise to occupy myself uh through that period and as well as putting on at least three kilos it sounds easier it sounds better in kilos doesn't it rather than like oh, <laughs> yeah. 100 I'm just going to use use measurements that people don't know. Yeah, three three <laughs> kilos. That's all I need to take off. <laughs> no, I mean uh, to to reiterate, Cameron, we're really uh, excited to have you on because when we were chatting about you know what we wanted this podcast to look like, in a sense, you were one of the first people that came to mind because if if your books, you know, and social media presence are any indication, you are the truly the uh, the nuanced man. Oh, come on. Um, you know, I had to pick a lane and I picked one that I felt, you know, the most comfortable with. Uh, you know, it irritates most of my, most of my immediate family, but I appreciate your sentiments. <laughs> well, it, it definitely doesn't irritate us. And I think that um, th- there's a lot of categories that we'll, we'll chat about today. I mean, everything from cocktails, antiques, watches and cars, of course, uh, sartorial endeavors and, and all these experiences that kind of are the makeup of, of you, of WM Brown Project, of Matt Rennick. But I think before we get started, I mean, 
I just wanted to establish, do, do you consider yourself a collector of any of those categories of, of any sorts, would you say? I have been collecting slash curating, and that's my way of saying I'm not a hoarder, um, <laughs> or cultivating or, God, saving things from themselves for for years you know i always i always kind of gravitated to the vintage finding flea market garage sale world you know junk shop antique shop um flea market i i just always really loved navigating that it was fun i like the hunt i like the bargain uh and it just it just came very you know it was naturally fun for me to do i think first and foremost I think, yeah, I think in collecting the hunt for me as well as like that thing that it, I don't want to say it gets sometimes underwhelming when you finally get it, but there's something so invigorating about wanting something and the chase of it. I don't know if it's a competitive thing with me, but it's hard to describe. I think it taps in also to the kind of male DNA or at least the established DNA of hunter gatherer provider you know, that kind of, that hunting instinct is, is in there. And I think, you know, it, it at least kind of shaped in, in, in a modern world because, you know, we're not running out and, you know, killing, you know, our food and with our canines and stuff like that. But, you know, <laughs> sure. you know some of us may, but, uh, but I think that, you know, that it's, that's a really terrifically fun part of it. You know, eBay kind of killed a lot of that and on some sense, but still even on eBay, it's still a fun, even, you know, on the digital formats of, you know, sh you know, shopping vintage goods and things. It, it, it's still fun when you can kind of figure out a way to navigate it and, you know, find that thing that nobody else did, you know. So I agree with you on every level. It is it is about the hunt and and that is the the fun of it. And uh, And then for me, it's like, did I get a deal is the thing that really is the most exciting part. Right. I, I think I can, Ryan and I can relate on this because we grew up in the same household, but um, we grew up in a household though, where it wasn't about like pushing somebody to get to a price where they couldn't go home and, and have, uh, you know, bread on the table that night. It wasn't about that. It was about if you don't ask, you don't get. And I think through collecting, I've carried that mentality, even on eBay. I mean, the hunt is amazing, but when you find that thing and you're like, holy shit, like this just is what I've been looking for. It just popped up like, what the hell? And you go and message that person and you, one of two things happens, right? You get that instant gratification where you get a message right back and they're saying, hey, let's make a deal. Or two, they never answer you. And then it's sold because someone just buys it at that price. <laughs> Right. I mean, I'll be very honest with you. If, you know, if, if somebody doesn't know what they have, I'm not telling them what, what it is. And that was the kind of unspoken etiquette of the flea market in the garage sale. Like, I don't know if you got a set of Baccarat that you haven't realized is French crystal and you've got like three for $10 on it. I'm, I'm going to offer you five. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and if you go for that, great. I think it's buyer beware on both ends of the spectrum. I don't have a problem of really lowballing people. And I don't have a problem when I'm selling, kind of sticking to my guns. Um, that's the kind of great part of all of this that the digital interface is, has uh, 
sort of gotten the way of. There used to be a great communication in the marketplace. Think about the Medina. Think about great trading routes. You know, it was about the conversation and the dialogue and the communication as much as it was about selling stuff. And that's what I really loved. My mom was a great garage sale uh, hound and a great haggler. And it was, I, I love the, the communication, the dialogue, the back and forth, the, the, the sparring. I, I, I don't know. I, I really enjoy that. And I think with the digital interface, it, it's, lost, it's lost the fun. You know, and even I think there's a generation much younger than me, hopefully much younger than you guys, that is like, they forgot, they don't know what that's like. You know, so you're set up in a flea market or something and you got, you know, $50 on an item, but you know you take 35 right? And you start the conversation. And if someone's like, hey, wow, that's great. How much is that? And you're like, yeah, it's 50 bucks. And they're like, okay, see you later. And I'm like, no, no, no. This is the start of the conversation, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and and that yeah. really was always the fun part. And I was, you know, I was never offended when somebody lowballed me. I was actually kind of, I always thought it was kind of funny. And I think that that dialogue, that communication is, I think, what made trade uh, so, so great. Yeah. I, I don't get uh, asked for advice often, probably because I'm 27. But when I do, my, my favorite piece of advice to give people is the worst someone ever is going to tell you is no. Right. And that, that couldn't be more true when it comes to collecting and negotiating and, and this idea of, of bartering for something that you want. Yeah. And, you know, my dad used to say, you don't get anything if you don't ask for it, first of all, which, which is, you know, has served me well. But another thing is like, I always preference some things like big purchases or, you know, things where you're really going to lowball. I, I always will say, listen, I don't, please don't be insulted by this. I don't want to insult you, but this is what it's worth to me if you're willing to go there. And, and that kind of like deflates the seriousness and the kind of the edginess of that conversation. You know, there's an art form to this stuff. And I studied it with some crazy good old timers and my mom and people I've navigated, you know, who are really good at selling and buying stuff. And I just think it's an absolute art form. Absolutely. It really is. It's funny when you were saying before about garage sales, like that was the one thing we didn't have. Cam and I growing up that I wish we did. It was like, for us, it was so weird. Like I used to like leave town, you know, for like a, a trip or a sports or something and like come home and my dad, like my skateboard would be gone. And my dad would just say, yeah, no, I gave it you know, to the gardener. And I'd say, what? Like, there were, I, I, like I, I missed a complete generation of being able to witness what that would be. Cause there were so many things growing up, like Cameron collected everything under the sun and then was always on to the next was definitely a hoarder as a kid, but we never got the chance to like just give that stuff away or even sell it to someone and see what that was like. Well, I thought it was interesting growing up because I watched my mom and we grew up in, you know, Binghamton, New York, which was kind of a mini metropolis. And, you know, one period there was a lot of industry and money there. So there was a lot of people with money from, you know, IBM was there, GE, you know, and there was a lot of great houses with great stuff. And I remember my mom just being so good at, negotiating and finding incredible stuff. And then all of a sudden, like when my mom, you know, got money and didn't have to be scrappy, it just like everything came from a big box store. And I just was like, wait, where'd all the good stuff go? You know, like, yeah. 
And um, because it really wasn't seen as antiquing as much as it was just like picking at garage sales, you know. Um, but I actually still have a lot of houseware stuff that I remember buying with my mom when I was, you know, heading off to college that I still own as an adult because it was just great stuff and is great stuff. And it's followed me through my life. And what I like about it is that, I mean, we talk about non-disposable, recyclable things and all that stuff, but that's sort of ultimately was what it was. It's like, you don't need to go out and buy new stuff. If there's great stuff out there that people are willing to give away or sell reasonably inexpensively, you can go the, the very high-end collectible route of, you know, I have a friend who spends tens of thousands of dollars on Danish furniture. But it's like, for me, the joy was I, I wanted to find that one kind of exclusive little piece tucked in the back of a, you know, furniture supply store, uh, like office supply store or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you there. I mean, my fiance and I, we were out the other day and um, there's a store down the street from us. It's, it's basically a vintage marketplace but it's sectioned off into many stores that people pay rent to have these spaces and sell their vintage items, ranging from $5 all the way to $12,000, you know, paintings. And we had just stumbled upon this, this wood um, bread basket um, bowl, essentially, that once you bake a fresh loaf of bread, it would go into these baskets, uh, these really long wood carved baskets. And I just did a quick Google search because I wasn't sure exactly what it was for. And you could buy them online from Pottery Barn, like brand new for $50. Or we could get this vintage one that was like beat up. You know, somebody's actually used it for what it was. And um, it's just, it's those sort of things. But I, I think segueing from, from the vintage stuff, how do you go about mixing old and new of course, you can collect right in both categories uh, in things like watches and cars. But what about like mixing old and new experiences? I, I think it's important that we uh, chat about that that Belmont Royal Scotsman trip you did because that was like a perfect combination of old and new. Um, can you tell us a, a little bit more about that ex experience, how it came about, and really what that was like? Well, I would say first of all, philosophically. You know, I I look to the old world. I really appreciate that, you know, kind of coming from immigrant European roots. Uh, I've always kind of leaned in heavily with that uh, kind of around my life. You know, I mean, I, I like modern things for my everyday life. Like, I like modern kitchen equipment. I don't want to be stoking a wooden stove. And um, <laughs> I, I like modern toilets and modern stereo equipment and things like that. But like, I always, you know, when I go to Europe and I go to, when I go and stay in hotels, I like the older school, older world hotels more than the kind of slick, modern kind of 20 or 21st century versions of the thing. And I, I think, you know, an ideal world is when you can mix both of those things seamlessly together, even though I am, you know, I really am a modernist as well. Like my house is very, my house upstate is very modern, built by a modern architect, you know, who's Austrian. But we kind of fill it with period things that are old and period. But, you know, I'm, I got a brand, you know, new Miele dishwashing machine. I'm not messing around. So, like, there are kind of rules that we follow with that. But, you know, that the Belmont was the sort of the perfect world where you have this very old means of travel and very glamorous, at least in, in this period, which is the train that went through Scotland. 
And, you know, now it's sort of seen as leisure and holiday. And they had a, they actually had a very difficult time kind of selling that product. And they came to me and they were like, what would you do? And I was like, first of all, I love trains. I love the romantic idea of trains. Uh, you have these amazing dining cars. And let's bring back the kind of glamour of how we would imagine that period in time being by putting this collection of people together and kind of playing out playing it out in real time because all the facilities are there with the train. And they were really excited about it and very generous and gave us the train for a couple of days. And we just kind of filled it with what I call people of influence, not influencers and, uh, and, and close friends. And uh, it was a great, rather incredible, like 72 hours. And uh, again, it, it was, it felt very old world and that appealed to a lot of us, you know, but what the good thing about that train versus the Orient Express, which I've had the pleasure of being on, the I was Orient just going to say, you're giving me that vibe. It's like a, you need to do like a murder mystery dinner while you're on that. <laughs> well, the thing about the Orient Express versus this Royal Scotsman is the Royal Scot, I mean, the Orient Express does not have in-room toilets and it does not have showers. Like you do not want to be on that train for more than an overnight, in my opinion, even though it's really one of the most glamorous group of train cars I've ever seen in my life, you know? Uh, but you know, what was great about the Royal Scotsman is like, there was ensuite bathrooms with showers and nobody was waiting in the line in the morning to use the John. And, you know, it's like, uh, <laughs> and, uh, it, and that made for a very kind of luxurious element that I thought was very smart and modern with a very old fashioned bit of, you know, transport. Nothing like a uh, 2 a.m. trip to the bathroom with a line. No, no, no. Let's just talk about morning coffee in a line. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> If you uh, if you could get that group together again, which I mean, I'm, I'm guessing you guys would, where would the next spot be? You know, we had actually had plans before the, uh, I like to call it the situation, um, <laughs> uh, to Belmont has another amazing property in Ravello, uh, which is on the Italian coast, like in the Amalfi coast. And we were, since all those all those guys were going to probably end up at PT, the big men's fa fashion fair, style fair in Florence. We were all going to kind of converge on this very elegant old Italian hotel on the coast and kind of build out another one of those experiences, which I hope we still have the opportunity to do. But it, it was such a great group of, you know, people that, be, you know, a lot of these guys, This that was the first time they met each other on that train and we all became intensely, you know, close and good friends. And because of our, you know, everyone was very kind of like-minded and very chill and very easygoing and everybody loved to put on a tuxedo. So, you know, that's where the friendships were born. I love it. Well, you guys are making me look bad. I can't even get my buddies to commit to this Toronto fishing trip we've been talking about since feels like the year of the flood, but it's, it's not happening. So maybe I'll just have to uh, put on are a tuxedo. Are you going to go walleye or pike fishing or? Yeah, like it was like one of those things where we, you know, all the guys like to fish and we'd always spoke about doing that. And, you know, it's at a weird time where some of my buddies have gotten married, some are having their first kids. And I, I'm, I'm hoping we didn't miss that window. But then like when I looked at what you did, I'm like, no, there's the, it, it could happen. It's just about setting the right time and someone being like that little bit more of the pusher of making it happen. Right. And I think what's fun about all those things is when you kind of make, um, you know, you make an event of that. And that can be a fishing trip uh, as yes. well as a, you know, a, you know, train trip or I don't know, 
uh, a weekend away in the, you know, in the mountains or whatever. I do think that, you know, we always kind of like to make rituals out of events. And oddly enough, we were in the middle of Scotland. And at one point, uh, there was, you know, there was a group of us that kind of diverted off and spent a couple of days in this hotel way, way, way up in the middle of nowhere. And at dinner, we all kind of converged at dinner. It was about six of us. And without even discussing it, everyone had put on a tuxedo. And I thought, <laughs> and like, and, and there were people, I, I promise you, there were people in the lobby. It's a really kind of like hiking, walking destination. And there were people basically just in wool socks at the at dinner. <laughs> <laughs> and we all walked in with tuxedos. And I don't know, I thought it was just kind of great. It was kind of quirky, timeless, something elegant about it. And uh, um, it, we turned a lot of heads that night. I have to say. That's so good. Was, was something like that trip difficult to plan? Or did you come to all the, I guess, the, the group that you're with and say, hey, here's the plan here's the, the, the price or the, um, you know, what we would need to, to make this happen. Who's in, who's not, or was it a little more complicated? Was it more like, Hey, who's in for this? And then let's plan it. Well, I think it's like planning any party. You start with the guest list. You know, we knew that we knew Belmont was going to provide X amount and then, you know, people would have to get, get kind of get themselves there and spend the first night there and all this other stuff. Right. So we started with the, the, the wish list guest list. And then we, we knew there was only X amount of cars with X amount of beds. So we kind of chiseled it off from there. And then we kind of fine tuned it. It was sort of like building out the best dinner party, you know, and we knew that some people wouldn't mind bunking up and some people would and, you know, how do you create a balance of, you know, style and personality. And, and, and Yolanda and I really spent a lot of time doing that. Like we spent many a morning, you know, with a call to Belmont kind of hacking that all out. And it just came together seamlessly at the end with good planning and thoughtfulness and, you know, allowing to pivot when you need to pivot because eventually something's going to go wrong. Um, but <laughs> always, but we were, we're lucky that nothing dramatic went wrong. Some people fell out of the guest list and, you know, th- to this day, when I see those people, they were like, I mean, p- my friend Sid Mashburn was like, why the hell did I go to my daughter's graduation? I could have gone, you know, <laughs> it was like stuff like that. Sid Mashburn is like, I-, I was shocked not to see him in the photos. Well, Sid was invited, but he, I mean, he did make the right choice. You should go to your daughter's graduation. Uh, but. Uh, you know, we'll get Sid on the next one. Awesome. I think it's time that uh, that we chat Negronis here. What do you say? Uh, I'm always up for that Negroni. I, I actually almost made one be, be, before I got here, and I realized oh, <laughs> so did I. <laughs> so did I, and I was like, I have a lot of stuff to do after this still. So yeah. Um, no, I think it's. Uh, I actually just finished a book on Negroni that will be out in May. Cannot no, wait I just got to say, yeah, I don't know if we could spoil it, but we saw the cover of it and uh, it's like, it's better than a Leonardo uh, Capielli, uh, Capiello rather poster that's in every Italian restaurant, but it's exactly what it makes you think of. Well, it's funny that, that, that I, I had no idea that that cover was even leaked on Amazon or wherever it is right now. Um, that sort of happens without a, an author ever knowing. But, you know, I, what I love about working with Artisan uh, is how incredibly thoughtful they are and allowing me 
to kind of armchair art direct all this stuff. And there was definitely a philosophical and aesthetic point of view with this book that they basically offered me. You know, their stronghold in the publishing world is very, very food and cookbook focused. And after the success of the watchbook, they were, they've said to me, well, what's next? And I was like, I don't know what's next. And they're like, well, I don't understand why you haven't pitched a Negroni book. And I'm like, are you asking me to do a Negroni book? And they're like, yeah, you do a Negroni book. And I was like, okay, that sounds good. And my approach to it was, first of all, as home bartenders, like I'm sure you guys are as well as I am, like I leave the pro stuff to the pros. Okay. Like I don't need a smoke machine and a hat to create a smoky, (laughs) you know, old fashioned at the bar. You know, like I want to make dry eyes. Right. Like, I don't need some funky dried garnish or some obscure bitters. I just want to build out an inventory of like X amount of drinks that I know I could make at home anytime. And that, and when I had been out there looking at other books, so much of it was just filler and fluff. And I was like, does the world need like 36 Negroni recipes? Absolutely not. But we want it. Yeah. <laughs> Are there 12 to 15 excellent variations on the original. Yes, for sure. And that's where that came from. So um, it's sort of to the point and it doesn't divert dramatically off the path just because I, I just don't buy it half the time when somebody's adding too many ingredients to something that is absolutely perfect as it is, you know? Yeah. I mean, like I have some cookbooks here and we haven't touched a single recipe in it just because it requires so many special ingredients. And most of the time when we're making a recipe of something, it's like, hey, we're going to go to the market down the street and we're going to find what we can find, but we're not expecting to find that. So let's just forget about that recipe. Yeah, I think that's the problem with a lot of, I mean, a lot of cookbooks is that. Right. But I guess, I guess they have their their place in, in the cookbook world. But it's nice that that artisan, because you've mentioned in the past that they, they kind of gave you a hard time at first about the watch book, but it seems like they, they, they finally get it and they, they get what you're trying to do. And I think that leaves open a lot of awesome opportunities for you to, to create some great stuff for, for people like us. Well, I think, you know, the luck of all of that is the book um, was terribly successful commercially. And of course, you know, all of us, it's sort of like when you make a hit movie, they're like, where have you been all this, all our, you know, it's like, no, I've, yeah. been, I've been making short films for a long time. Um, and, <laughs> but it does afford you the opportunity for, you know, people to know that they've, they've taken a risk. It's proven successful. It's less of a risk now. So let's, you know, let's, let's move forward with another project. And th- that's, um, that's very lucky. And um, I feel very privileged to have that opportunity. And I, you know, I think that the, I came out of that watch book with a little bit of confidence knowing that mm, maybe my instincts are correct. Maybe there is a good, the way I'm approaching this stuff, I'm not alone. And um, exactly. And, and those were reasonably good instincts and uh, peppered with a lot of luck and, and a lot of really incredibly thoughtful, helpful people around you, you know? Yeah, they're easily my uh, my favorite gift to give to people. And and when people come over and and they see your books on my coffee table, I definitely get a little bit more credibility uh, of of being someone decently cool. So, (laughs) wow, that's good. That is very true. 
it was really important to me coming out of the kind of magazine world and kind of media space to make objects that were physically attractive. I felt that, you know, as an object, you needed to gravitate to it, even if you weren't interested in the subject. And Artisan understood that as well. And when we designed the book together, you know, they were be they were really receptive to those kind of design collaboration ideas. And I think that is uh, very helpful because, you know, there's often great books, great cookbooks, great car books that are filled with good content, but they're really ugly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Call me superficial, but I just wanted it to look good. You know? No, it's I mean, important. I, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a, a coffee table, a bookshelf, whether it's a gift. It's just kind of one of those instant gratification things when somebody opens, whether it's a man and his watch or a man and his car up, and they're like, this is heavy duty. This is, this is super, super neat. Yeah, I think um, the true test of that it was revealed and answered last night. I was looking, and my girlfriend was like, oh, what? I was like, oh, yeah, I'm prepping a little bit for tomorrow. And I was like, you got to see the cover of his book that's coming out. And she looks, and she goes, oh, my gosh, we need to get that. That's, that needs to be here. And she is the hardest person to please aesthetically. I've had no call in anything that's in this apartment I'm sitting in right now. I feel like I don't even belong here, but that uh, will give me some street cred. <laughs> that is so good. Yeah. So needless to say, we're excited about it. Well, I think also that, I mean, that, the you know, the female de- demographic in terms of, you know, I've heard that from girlfriends, friends, wives, sisters of, you know, they gravitated to the car and watch book even even though they can give two shakes about cars and watches. And again, that was a big part of this part of the strategy. Well, yeah. And I think, you know, what's funny is that when um, a couple of years ago, when I went to Italy, I'm not, you might not remember, but I'd reached out and asked some just recommendations of places to go and all sorts of stuff like that. And now my fiance is like, anytime we go on a trip, she's like, ask Matt where we should go in this, this, you know, European hellside country. <laughs> Well, it's funny, you know, I'm way more generous about that than my wife, you know, she's been in travel for so long and she always gets like, uh, I wouldn't say offended, but she gets sometimes prickly when it's like absolute strangers that have never had any engagement whatsoever suddenly say like, well, what are your top 25 restaurants in Paris, <laughs> right? <laughs> and Yolanda's like, oh, what is the matter with these people? Don't they know the amount of time and experience? I said, Yolanda, you're talking about a, a population of people now that type something into a machine, their phone, a computer, whatever, ask it a question and it spews out piles of answers. And that's what they think you are, is that you are, you are the, you are the Google search. And 25 though. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's like, listen, I don't have a problem saying if someone says, Hey, I'm in Barcelona, where should I get a drink? Dude, I have, if I'm sitting around with time on my hands and I'm sitting on the train or commuting or whatever and I, I get that DM, I always am like, oh, go to Bar X. But, you know, I think it's a, you also have to be kind of realistic with what you ask for and how you ask for it and things like that. You know, obviously, you guys, you didn't piss me off. So I gave you an answer, probably. <laughs> <laughs> you no, know, you definitely did. I mean, the funniest, I have to tell this story because her and I crack about it, crack up about it all the time. I asked you uh, in Venice where I should go. And you said, Harry's Bar, get the cheese sandwich, get a Bellini and sit there and eat some olives and enjoy an afternoon. And we had gotten to Venice. 
And that was our first stop. We were starving. And we didn't know what to expect with this cheese sandwich or anything like that. So we get into Harry's. We order the cheese sandwich. And it's this tiny little thing, but it is so good. And they're unreal, but I ate it in one bite. And my fiance and I sat there and we just drank and ate endless bowls of olives for like an hour and a half because we were so hungry, but we had to have the cheese sandwich. So we just wanted to stay there and keep doing it. And well, the, uh, it was a blast. Yeah. I mean, the, the problem with Harry's and both Harry's is that I actually think their Italian food is incredibly mediocre. I think their drinks are extraordinary and their kind of little aperitivi food is what it's all about. And that damn cheese sandwich is, I just order them by, by the dozens. So yeah. Yeah. Food. They're, they're incredible. What do you think it is about cocktails, watches, cars, you know, incredible wardrobes that like, what is it about that stuff that makes you personally tick? Cause it, it's your vibe. It absolutely is your vibe. And, it, and it's a lot of people's, but I mean, like I'd be lying if I say you don't do those things right. Well, you know, first of all, it was my dad. You know, my father was a commercial artist, sign painter, pinstriper. You know, he was in the kind of art graphic design world. And he had a very specific sense of style. And he, you know, loved British sports cars and well-made things. And he used to shoot professional skeet and trap. And, you know, we had, he like had these handmade Belgian shotguns. I mean, it was always like stuff. Uh, that was really well crafted and that kind of really rubbed off on me and you know he made an effort to point that kind of stuff out and the other thing is like you know he was a guy that was in pair, like Levi's and uh red wing boots and a barracuda jacket to work but on the weekends he would wear you know Harris tweed blazer and a tie you know like this he really enjoyed the process and the ritual of dressing and he wasn't a grunt that had to wear a suit every day to a crappy office. He was really, had a quite kind of liberal, you know, very open-ended job. But really, it was kind of a Levi's and Boots kind of job. So because he liked things like Harris Tweed, you know, that was his kind of weekend kit and stuff like that. So that, like, made an influence in me. And, you know, I think a lot of the, like, my grandfather, my mother's side was, you know, there was a shoemaker and, you know, that stuff was really important to them. But it all kind of went, came back to craft, you know, and well-made things and buying things once and putting the effort into saving your money to buy, like, the best pair of shoes, the, you know, the best version of that watch you could afford or, or car that you want. And that really resonated with me and kind of carried on in my life. I love hearing that because... Cameron and I and our older brother the same way, uh, our mom's dad was the epitome of all of this. And there's no one that any one of us, even our buddies who met him, did not want to be like him. Always dressed to the nines, was in the car business, was always you know, driving cars that he should have been in the back seat in, that he'd always let us know, you're only cool when you're in the back seat of these. But, and he was just, he just, oozed cool taught me how to play pool it's like my favorite game in the world now and it, nothing will ever change so i really really uh admire that it, you found that kind of with your dad too because when when you have a connection with someone that you look up to like that and then that influences your taste for these kind of things i think it's just a little bit more it obviously is more special but you appreciate it just as much as you admire it of course more yeah and i you know you know i grew up with 
you know, men in my life that I really admired. You know, there wasn't an antagonistic relationship. I wasn't abused or beaten. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, these I really admired and looked up to and wanted to emulate these characters and, you know, particularly my father. So um, I guess I, you know, I kind of lucked out that, you know, I became interested in sort of the same things. And, um, you know, I, I think my path deviated here and there, but as I became an older version of myself, it became more defined and refined and, you know, edited down. Yeah, I, I totally on board with that. And I think that when it comes to collecting, I think that there's maybe two or three types of people, depending on what you collect. I think when it comes to vintage things, as a young person growing up in this uh, era of social media, I think you lose some of that experience of maybe getting into something vintage unless you, you know, follow vintage watch pages, for example, or vintage cars. Those are two easy things to go vintage with. But when it comes to antiques and art and, you know, flea markets and all that sort of stuff, I really feel like that is something that unless you were brought up that way or ever experienced that from a young age, I think that's something that would be really difficult to latch on to now. Well, you know, my I'm raising a daughter who now is 17 and even though she complains that we schleppered all these flea markets and crappy junk shops and stuff like that, you know, she has a really good eye for things and I could see her gravitating to specific stylistic things and objects, you know, not unlike myself. And you know, again, it it becomes maybe it's a part of your DNA. I think particularly, and it's easy for her as a teenage girl to, you know, it's obviously gravitating to kind of vintage clothing and, you know, what that means and like, you know, the, the find and the, and the affordability of that. And, uh, but, you know, I do a lot of fly fishing and I obviously, you know, I have, I own a lot of barbers. And one of the whole, one of the holy grail barbers is the, the, the spay coat, the half fly, the half cut fly fishing coat in there terribly hard to find now and um very very expensive when you find them and i was um, clara was spending some time in rome and there was a kind of cool little thrift like secondhand clothing store scene in rome and uh she walks out with one of these spay coats and i was like what the i i actually have two of them okay which is rare but i have two of them and and it was like my size it was amazing condition and like she absolutely paid pennies on the dollar for it, and I was like, "Oh my god!" And Unbelievable. She was, and she was like, "Dad, this one is mine. You don't come near it. <laughs> it's, it's not added to your collection. You don't get to borrow it." And I was like, "All right, I, you own that. Okay, I get it. I get it." But like, she obviously was listening to me, and she obviously was paying attention to how I was looking at stuff and what I was searching for and why I was buying the versions of that thing. And again, that's that kind of, you know, osmosis that happens, you know, being pulled in tow uh, with a bunch of nutty parents, a couple of nutty parents who are obsessed with stuff, you know? Yeah. I think the the longer that you look at something that you want to purchase or that you want to find, the quickness of like your eye to find that gets so, you know, so refined and, like I get all these, you know, like eBay notifications and auction notifications and all these things of what I'm looking for. And it'll be like, 
200 results for this, but I can zoom through it because my eye can just pick up at this point on what exactly it is that I'm looking for. Yeah, it's funny, you, you know, you're using an example that is so of your generation, right? You're like, oh, I can go through the eBay scroll. You know, to me, I always equate it to like mushroom hunting. I don't know if you've ever gone mushroom hunting, but like you go, you, the first time you go mushroom hunting with like a total pro, which again, like good mushroom hunting are secret spots, just like any good thrift store. And, you know, it's like the same. So you'll get out in the, get out in the woods and say, and this happened to me the first time I went looking for chanterelles and I was in um, Oregon. And the guy was like, well, this, I said, okay, I know what a chanterelle is, but how do I find them? And he's like, oh, look at, they're right there. And you're like, where, where, I can't see anything. Like, what are you talking about on this like pine needle forest bed? And then all of a sudden you see one. And then all of a sudden your eye is trained and you're like, oh my God, they're absolutely everywhere. And here's a better version of that and da, 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 da. And I think that is sort of what happened when I was going to the Salvation Armies as a kid. Like I was looking for, you know, a very specific uh, Pendleton wool flannel shirt, or I was looking for like military, World War II military jackets or whatever. And I could just scan the store and be like, uh, boop, 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 there they are. Or I would do that with Harris Tweeds. Like, uh, I could go through the rack and pick out every single Harris tweet. Very rarely do I miss do I miss the 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 identification. And I and again, that's about kind of training your eye and being good at it and being and moreover, like kind of knowing what you like more than anything. I actually was cleaning out my quote unquote barber closet today because I had to take a picture of one and I was just like, oh God, it's like, what am I doing? You know, I don't own, <laughs> I don't own a shop. But I also don't want to get rid of it, you know? No, there's certain things that you got to hold on to. And and back to going, you know, using a trained eye to find something. I, I've been, my favorite stores are antique stores. And just like zooming through eBay, I can zoom through an antique store if I'm looking for a piece of Baccarat or I'm looking for a piece of Lalique or any sort of thing specific that I know I'm looking for. I mean, I can pick things out. And I think if you do things like that enough that, and, and you enjoy it, it, it really becomes second nature. Yeah. And you know, when I did this little road trip from Florida to New York and back or New York to Florida and back, you'd see on the side of the road, like largest flea market indoor space in Georgia, 25,000 square foot. I was like, I can get through that in six minutes. Yeah. You know, like I, I know exactly what, you know, the kind of period and the groupings that I'm looking for. And, you know, they're always, you know, when you kind of walk into this place, you, you know, people are like, hey, how y'all doing? You're like, oh, I'm great. I'm great. You know, and they're like, oh, you get the lay of the land that y'all on it. I always head right. I always go right, you know. And, yeah. uh, and then all of a sudden, like in 10 minutes, we're out. And they're always like, well, that was quick. And I was like, yes, it was. <laughs> On to the next one. You know, like, yeah, I got past the 1,500 rocking chairs that I didn't need. That's right. Or like, exactly 3,000 wooden bowls in the green depression glass. You know, it's like, yeah. You know. So, um, <laughs> yeah. And I think that, um, you, you, yeah, you just, you get a refined eye, you get a, a specific point of view. And then, you know, but you hit saturation points too. Like, I, at one point I was, this is years and years ago. I was so obsessed with taxidermy. Um, and I was just buying piles of, you know, taxidermy. And, and then when we did this trip through the South, there was so much taxidermy. And I said, I turned to Yolanda. I was like, 
aren't you glad that phase is over? And she was like, I'm really glad that. (laughs) Back to the uh, Campari ashtrays. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's a problem too. She puts a short leash on me when I'm in Europe and I find them like, you know, I'm like, no, but this one has this gold rim with the stamp is different on the back. She's like, Matt, it looks like every other one. I was like, okay, I'm, but I'm not leaving it behind. I'm not leaving. <laughs> it's coming we'll give, with you. We'll never it. leave a fallen man behind. No, no, no. But yeah, I think that um, I've definitely gone through waves and phases of stuff that I concentrated on. And then um, you kind of move on to the next thing. And then there's times where I've just been exhausted by it and, and just said, okay, let's just pump the brakes here and you know, figure something else out, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Back to taxidermy. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, uh, Matt, we've reached, we've reached that point where I think we're ready to do what we call the collector's gene. And it's basically a rundown of topics based upon your personal collections. Um, it could be cars, watches, antiques, uh, anything sartorially inclined. Um, and whether the answer sparks a personal, answer or story of someone else that you'd like to share we're leaving it up to you is that sound good yeah sounds great all right so the one that got away like what's the one thing that you missed out on that you like it's keeping you up at night or maybe it did for a while okay that is very easy it was a mid-sized rose gold rolex that was one of the most it was early 1960s mid-size and it was in a flea market here in New York where there were actually pre-internet and watch madness was actually a great place with great dealers for watches. And I remember it was 5,000 bucks, which I could never even imagine finding that watch for the time. But, you know, not for nothing. It was a big chunk of change for Yolanda and I at the time. And we were building our house upstate. And I said to her, she was like, Matt, that's the most beautiful watch. I said, I know, I know. It's it's. It's a very special watch. And I said, but we could either have flushing toilets or we could have that watch. <laughs> and uh, as smart young adults, we chose flushing toilets. And that watch slipped through our, fing- through our fingers. And I, I have to, I'll be honest with you, I've been looking for that ever since. Was it a, a date just or a date? or? Uh, it was a date midsize rose gold, which were, which were primarily. Uh, that they were, there were a lot of them in like the South American and Latin market for some reason. It was a kind of, you know, style of the time that people really like, but I have been hard pressed to find that one for sure. Yeah. Anything in pink gold now and at, you know, good condition, great price. It's just, it's too hard to come by. Yeah. How about the, uh, the opposite of that, the on deck circle, anything you have your eye on next? You know, I always, I really love, I love Fornicetti and like Italian modernism. You know, I travel a lot to Europe now and, you know, I have friends in Rome and there was that part of like Italian modernism in decorative arts that I always really liked. And um, it's funny, you see a lot of it was brought into America, but it's much more harder to find and very, very highly collectible. And uh, I love the sense of humor in the stuff. So I'm always kind of like a little bit on the DL, kind of scoping that stuff out. All right. We'll, we'll try and edit that part out for you then. <laughs> <laughs> what about like the unobtainable? Like you can't have because it's too expensive or it's in a museum and maybe we'll talk privately about getting a group uh, to go steal it. Like what would that be? 
You know, I, I guess I would lean into the kind of art world with that. There's a modern painter named Alex Katz that I always really liked. And there was a very early on, there was a online art e-com. And every once in a while, like one of these paintings would come up and I'd be like, oh my, Yolanda, it's like a thousand, we need to buy that. It's, and they would always slip through my fingers and stuff. And then I have a friend that has an Alex Katz. Um, it was a portrait of her actually. And it's it's just so great. And it's just so thoughtful. And um, I love that whole period of uh, art. And I had the pleasure of meeting him years and years ago. So it, it, I would say that unattainable thing is probably in in the art world, in the painting world. And someone like Alex Katz is uh, a painting I would someday love to own. Awesome. If uh, this is this is the the page one rewrite. So if you could collect anything besides all of your current collections, what would it be and why? And and you quite possibly just answered it, but we'll ask it anyway. No, I think I would if I I would just collect more cars. I would just collect cars and more cars, and I would just put the Jay Leno Haranic version of Jay Leno Garage together. <laughs> he's he's the man, isn't he? Yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, on that note, who's the goat? Who do you look up to most in the collecting world? Uh, this guy, uh, Doug, that has done all the picking and collecting uh, for Ralph Lauren over the years. I mean, he is the OG. I mean, he is someone with such impeccable taste and understanding well ahead of the curve of you know what people are collecting from you know, Western objects to, you know, English gentry, not only with small objects and decorative arts and watches and jewelry, he was also really kind of the man in the vintage world for clothing and stuff like that as well. And obviously he was hired by the right person, Ralph Lauren. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Hopefully Ralph uh, leaves him that Bugatti or something. I think Doug's gone pretty good for himself. I don't know Bugatti level, but I'm sure they're pretty good. I know the answer to this one, but uh, the chase or the sale, um, the hunt more or the ownership? It's the hunt. It's the hunt. Yeah. Who I, what you have, you really don't. I don't, I, I'm, I don't need bragging rights for much. Yeah. Closing it out, do you feel like you were born with the collectors, Gene? You know, I'm sure we talked about DNA. Like I, my mom, you know, right down to like dumpster diving and garbage picking, you know, like that is still part of my everyday life. Like the amount of like crap that I pull off the street here in Brooklyn and come home with it, you know, like the, at one point the backyard was just filled with, you know, Webers that people were throwing out. And I was like, look at all these Webers, you know, like, (laughs) I mean, that comes from someplace. And I, I, I think, yeah, I would say it's some in, in one of those chromosomes. Love it. Well, Matt, thanks so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. And um, there's so much to learn about you and and all that you're working on. And we just appreciate you taking the time. It was my pleasure. And, uh, you know, I'm available when I'm not, you know, catch me on the fly when I'm not picking up the next obsessed object. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Gio, we'll ask you for uh, 40 restaurants in France. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for all you listeners out there, do not do that. <laughs> you heard it here first, guys. All right, that does it for this episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. This has been Collector's Gene Radio, signing off. <laughs>